Good afternoon. My name is Jerry Long. I have been a member of the psychology department for over 30, well over 30 years now. Um, and it is my pleasant uh, responsibility this afternoon to introduce our next speaker, Dr. David Penn. Now, in addition to my colleagues, I recognize many of the faces out there. I see a lot of my students, which is great, by the way. Uh, but I also recognize many of the alums who've come back to help us celebrate this 50th anniversary event. Now, for those of you who know me, you know that my field is perception. And it occurred to me that it might seem a little odd to, to you that a perceptual researcher has been asked to introduce um, a Dr. Penn, who is a, a clinical psychologist, ma made quite a name for himself as a clinical psychologist. Well, in the distant past, 25 years <laughs> ago, when David was a student in the MS program here at Villanova, he worked in my lab. I directed his master's thesis. We published a couple of papers together, and that work was presented at a couple of conferences. <clears throat> and I assure you that that work done in my lab was in visual perception. <laughs> I checked this morning. The title of his thesis was Factors Affecting the Resolution of Moving Targets, Dynamic Visual Acuity, clearly a visual task. Since David left Villanova, he has established a wonderful career that I'm going to summarize for you in just a moment. But it's a career, as I mentioned, in, in which he's been a practicing licensed clinician and a clinical investigator. Now, my feelings about uh, this illustrious alumnus tend to oscillate between pride that, that one of my students has gone on to do so incredibly well and a little confusion and maybe a little embarrassment about what I possibly could have done to drive such a talented <laughs> individual and such a motivated person completely out of the field of, of, of perception. <laughs> I quite heard that. Now, on most days, I can convince myself that I should feel pride, and that's the way I am today. So building on my sense of pride, I'm going to get back to our guest. And I'm going to try to summarize for you his very impressive 56-page professional veto. When David finished at Villanova, he went to the doctoral program in clinical psychology at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. After completing his studies there and finishing a clinical internship here in eastern Pennsylvania at the Medical College of Pennsylvania, David accepted an assistant professor position at the Illinois Institute of Psychology, where he remained for just a couple of years. He then moved on to the psychology department at LSU before accepting a position at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1999, where he has remained and where he currently holds the position of full professor in that department. Dr. Penn's research efforts over the past 25 years have been outstanding. His work has been supported by literally, no hyperbole, literally dozens of grants, ranging from several small university-based grants to grants supported by international pharmaceutical companies such as Eli Lilly, Johnson & Johnson, and Janssen Pharmaceutica, to large multi-year federal grants from such agencies as the National Alliance for Research on Schizophrenia and Depression and the National Institute for Mental Health, and I counted four separate NIMH grants in this veto. In 2007, Dr. Penn was named in the Journal of Clinical Psychology as one of the top producers of scholarly publications in clinical psychology PhD programs, an accomplishment well supported by his record. He has published over 120 peer-reviewed articles, almost 20 book chapters, two edited books, and he has presented his work at almost 100 conferences, with many of these presentations invited presentations at both national 
and international venues. Not surprising, Dr. Penn serves as a frequent reviewer for the very top journals in his field and is on the editorial board for two such journals. And I'd like to also mention that in addition to this incredible scholarship, Dr. Penn was the 2005 recipient of the John L. Sanders Award for Distinguished Undergraduate Teaching at UMC Chapel Hill. Now, concerning the focus of Dr. Penn's research, some of which we're going to hear today, it's my understanding that he has two primary research areas, social cognition and psychosocial treatment for schizophrenia. With regard to social cognition, he is interested in how an individual's social cognitions, that is his emotions, perceptions, attributional styles, and view of his mind, changes across the course of schizophrenia. Regarding psychosocial treatment for schizophrenia, Dr. Penn has conducted studies examining both group and individual cognitive behavioral treatment regimens for various types of schizophrenics and for autistics. The title of Dr. Penn's presentation today is Social Cognition and Interaction for Schizophrenia. I'm extremely pleased and, and truly very proud to introduce Dr. David Penn. Thank you. Well, thanks, Jerry. I hope everybody could hear me well, okay. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be back here. I uh, got my master's here in 86, and I think it's 86. That's what, 85. That's what it says on something, whatever it says on here, that's when I got the master's degree. And actually, I'm kind of following on the amazing talk we just had. I mean, I'm a failed um, sort of physiological researcher because I actually started out because Dan Ziegler got me accepted here, and I worked in Byron and Inger's lab, and I think I set a record for killing more rats than you know, the New York Sanitation Department. So um, after failing in their lab miserably, uh, Jerry was kind enough to take me into his lab, and I really learned a lot about perception and um, actually stopped by the old lab, which I can talk about at the end um, uh, today. Uh, and it's just, a, it's an honor to be here. I really loved Villanova. I was here during the national championship in 85, and uh, you know, it was just, it was a great time. So I'm gonna talk about social cognition interaction training. I'm not a social psychologist, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I wanna make it clear, because I know there are a number of social psychologists in the audience, and I wanna make sure that um, uh, I, I, I stay in my place, especially in regard to social cognition and schizophrenia. Um, this is briefly what I'm gonna talk to you about. Um, I'm gonna talk to you real quickly about sort of the phases of treatment development, and then what aspects of social cognition are measured in schizophrenia research, why is it important in the context of schizophrenia research, and then talking about this intervention we developed, social cognition and interaction training. You need to have a good acronym, so even if the treatment stinks, as long as you got the acronym, you know, you can, you can make some progress in the field. Um, so these are some of the stages of treatment development. Um, I'm going to talk to you about the first three, sort of trying to lay out your theoretical model, the, the, uh, the research support for developing an intervention, developing your manual, and then pilot testing. This is kind of where we're hopefully going, and any results I show you today are actually preliminary results, so if they look promising, that's all they are, they're eye candy. Um, uh, the results are not the uh, result of large randomized controlled trials, so I just want to put that in, in context. So if you think about the first stage, this is just kind of interesting. So for social psychologists, Deb Konjeski is here, and she, you know, I think was a great influence on me because I really got interested about social psychology when I uh, uh, left Villanova, and I maintain my interest in perception because the person I work with in Nebraska was interested in information processing and schizophrenia. And even though social psychology has this great history, in so, uh, social cognition has a great history in social psychology, 
And schizophrenia really didn't exist for a while. And as you can see, this is from an uh, article by Michael Green. Um, and they looked at the number, uh, how often social cognition and schizophrenia were mentioned in the, in the sort of key words. And you can see that starting about 1997 until about 2007, there's been a great increase in the interest in this area. Most of the interest in schizophrenia has been on what we would call non-social cognition, like conceptual reasoning, stuff you'd think about measuring a con continuous performance test, Wisconsin card sort, straight memory tests. And then somewhere, somehow, people started getting really interested in, wow, maybe how you think about other people is also important. So you can see that there's been like this really explosion. And actually, I, I should have graphed it out. I mean, it's probably like this at this point now. Um, and it really speaks to a broader issue is what leads to these changes in, in, in a field of research? I mean, why did this get hot? And it's probably a separate conversation uh, because I remember talking about social cognition schizophrenia here at actually a pharmaceutical meeting and they practically threw me off the stage saying, you know, not ready for prime time. Um, I st I'm still obviously bitter about it and I think about it quite a bit. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I just remember that, that being a, a, a big issue and now, of course, everyone is looking at this issue. Schizophrenia, I assume most of you know what that is. Um, it's a uh, uh, it's a major psychiatric disorder. It's associated with hearing voices, delusions, disorganized thinking. And I should tell you the hallmark of it is um, impaired social functioning. Um, um, for those of you who are social psychologists who plan on going to social psychology, you know there's a lot more to social cognition than this. This tends to be the areas that people in schizophrenia focus on in, in their research on social cognition. And these actually are the big two, emotion perception and theory of mind. Um, emotion perception, uh, as many of you can probably guess, involves, uh, typically involves tasks that comprise static faces expressing different emotions or actors expressing different emotions or even people interacting. Um, this actually um, was sort of the primary area of social cognition. Um, actually, here in Philadelphia with Alan Bellack and Kim User at Medical College of Pennsylvania, we were doing work on this in the 80s. Kim was also one of my mentors, so it was kind of neat to sort of follow up on their work. So here's an example of a task. Um, which of these best describes former President Bush's expression, angry, confused, happy, or thoughtful? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Confused, it's actually all of the above, but it's, it's very close. Well, what do we know about emotion perception? Um, this is kind of the most boring thing. We know that people with schizophrenia are impaired relative to either control subjects or non-clinical controls, uh, 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 non-clinical or clinical controls. These are just normal people. They tend to do worse on negative emotions uh, like anger and fear, and this seems to be consistent with also healthy controls. I'm just going to show you a quick slide that it looks like their impairments are present early in the course of the illness, like when they first get ill, and that it's not only a function of being acutely psychotic, but their symptoms are also, their deficits are present when they are, um, when their symptoms have remitted. And this is from an older study we did. Um, this is number correct on a face emotion identification test. Controls, um, chronically ill but stable and acutely ill. And just basically what you see here is that there's a stepwise pattern. The acutely ill are the most impaired. Uh, the differences between these two groups get attenuated when you control for psychotic symptoms. But still, these people have very little psychotic symptoms right now, but they're still impaired. So they're sort of people that have had the illness and they're quite stable. And this is from a large study that Gene Addington and other people in North Carolina did. And they looked at controls, people who are at clinical risk for psychosis. Uh, they're called people with prodromal symptoms. So they have like subclinical symptoms 
first episode and multi-episode. And if you're looking at this graph closely, and I'm sorry there's no error bars here, you can see that the absolute differences aren't huge. Um, what the literature generally shows is that you find pretty consistent differences between first episode and multi-episode with controls. Multi-episode just means they've had a number of psychiatric um, episodes and hospitalizations. And the difference between people at clinical risk and controls tends to be small, although you tend to observe it in some studies, partially seems to be a function of actually how well your control group does, uh, if that makes sense. So sometimes the prodromes seem to uh, perform uh, consistently, but it's the comparison group that might vary. <coughs> so what this means is deficits are, are present early. So for a number of you in the audience who are 18, 19, 20 years old, that's when first episode psychosis occurs. Already they're showing impairments in emotion perception. Theory of mind, this came out of the work on autism. Um, this involves the ability to uh, represent the mental states of others. Um, this can involve trying to put yourself in someone's place um, or making inferences about somebody's intentions. Um, again, I think this area is much better developed in, um, in autism and in developmental psychology. There are a number of tests that measure this, and you could say this is both a strength and weakness. It's a strength because the construct is covered quite well, but it's a weakness because people really don't know if all these things are measuring the same thing. And we're sort of getting into some, uh, I'm getting interested a little bit on trying to understand what the nature of the constructs are in some of these social cognitive domains. Here's an example of, of, a, of a verbal theory of mind test. Paul has to go in an interview and he's running late. Um, he, while tying his shoes, he says to his wife, Jane, I want to wear that blue shirt, but it's very creased. What does Paul really mean when he says this? Anybody with theory of mind? Iron my shirt, right. And when you're like me this morning, no one could iron your shirt. You just were sort of talking into thin air. Nobody was listening. Um, what we know, there's been a number of meta-analyses. And you could tell when an area starts to get kind of hot is all of a sudden you have a lot of re reviews and meta-analyses popping up. And there's been a lot right now in social cognition. We know that theory of mind is impaired in schizophrenia. There doesn't seem to be a specific link with specific symptoms like um, hearing voices or you know, delusions. It seems to be independent of general intelligence. And this is kind of a, a great interest to people in schizophrenia, because if you can account for it by general intelligence, then there's really no reason to study it, or less, it's less compelling. And there is some evidence that people have impairments in theory of mind, both when they are acutely psychotic and when their symptoms have remitted. Um, the last area of interest, and of course this comes out of the social psychology literature, and again, it's probably a bit more simplistic, is attributional style. And it's trying to understand uh, how do we understand why positive and negative outcomes occur to us or happen to us. Um, so, you know, you email somebody or probably more clearly you text somebody and they don't text you back right away. Or they send you a short text and you're expending a long text. And you have to ask yourself, well, why do they do that? Are they mad at me or, you know, are they busy? Um, and there have been a number of paper and pencil tests to assess their um, attributional style. And as some of you can imagine, if people with schizophrenia have impaired, let's say, cognitive functioning, um, paper and pencil tests may be especially difficult for them. Um, so this is an example of one from the schizophrenia literature. Um, it basically has a scenario. You have to come up with a reason for the scenario, write it down, and then you have to, the person has to circle whether the outcome is due to themselves or due to others or due to the situation. Um, real quickly, what you find is that people who are paranoid show a personalizing bias. That is, when something negative happens, they blame people, other people, rather than sort of fate or themselves for negative outcomes. Um, so someone doesn't text you back, you think that they're a jerk. You know, you don't like them. Um, 
And we know a little bit that when people first meet individuals, they form dispositional uh, judgments. So when you meet somebody, if they're not very friendly, you think, oh, they're a jerk. But then later on, you correct for situational information. Um, and the question is, why don't people with schizophrenia who have persecutory delusions correct for situational information? Well, one is research out of England showed that people with persecutory delusions have a high need for closure. Now, this is a social psych construct. It's a need for an answer right away. So if someone said to you at the beginning of my talk, I've got to tell you something, but I'll tell you after this horrible talk's over, you know, you'd be like, no, no, tell me right now. That would be you have a high need for closure. And the flip side of it is, is you have a poor tolerance of ambiguity. Um, and it is shown that people with persecutory delusions need to have an answer right away. And then secondly, we also know that they, they have cognitive rigidity. They're not able to generate alternative explanations for an event that happens. So they often stick to the first event that they have uh, explanation. So why is social cognition important? Well, starting in 1986, Bob Liberman, a psychiatrist at UCLA, a um, number of models of social functioning in schizophrenia say that social cognition has an important role. Perhaps it mediates a relationship between cognition and social behavior. And there have been, as you can see here, a number of re reviews and fed as a recent meta-analysis um, showing an association between social cognition and social behavior. Now, this might not be real interesting or sexy to most of you, but as schizophrenia researchers, this is kind of cool stuff, uh, just in the sense that it seems to show a stronger relationship with social functioning than cognitive ability. And so people start thinking, well, maybe this is a reasonable treatment target that we should focus on. Because as I mentioned, social functioning impairments is like a hallmark characteristic of schizophrenia. And this is just an example of a study we did where we looked at um, uh, trying to predict uh, social skill in a three-minute role play. And we looked at cognitive factors, social cognitive factors, symptom factors, et cetera. And we did hierarchical multiple regression. And what you see is the, the, the factors that accounted for the most variance were the social cognitive factors. I think the other thing that should pop out is there's a lot of unexplained variance here that we, didn't, that we, 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 we don't know what's accounting for social skill. But this is kind of typical of studies in this area where they're trying to say, which, which one seems to contribute more, cognition or social cognition or symptoms? How do we explain it? And then, you know, does this have implications for treatment? All right, so just ending this conceptualization piece. So we came up with a little bit of a framework so we could develop a treatment. So imagine that guy there is somebody you see at uh, Tallentine Hall, one of the faculty perhaps, or somebody. And you walk, and we know that people with schizophrenia don't always look at the key parts of the face, which is the eyes and the mouth. And so early on, they're not looking at the correct parts of the face, and they may be extracting the wrong information. Um, now, we know that people, especially if they're paranoid, have a high need for closure. So they want to make a decision right away what this person is, how they're feeling. So you may conclude this person's angry. Now, they may be angry. They may be upset. They may have gas. They may have any number of things, but you don't know. The next thing you have to decide is, why are they angry? So then we know because there's this tendency to have a personalizing bias, the person's going to conclude that they're angry at me. And then because they are cognitively rigid, they won't be able to generate alternative explanations other than they're angry at me. And this will result in them acting unfriendly towards this person you see at Tallentime. And this will reinforce their paranoia. So what this means is, is what we wanted to do was develop a treatment that would sort of address things like emotion perception, jumping to conclusions, attributional style, and also theory of mind. So we use this as our framework. The last thing before we sort of talk about the treatment is can this treatment be, can social cognition be improved? Now, 
just real briefly, in terms of drugs, medications, most of the studies show that antipsychotics do not improve emotion perception or other aspects of social cognition. Um, so, uh, and this, this study, which I was not the PI for, is the largest study of um, atypical neuroleptics. Jeff Lieberman at Columbia is a PI, and we were able to look at some of the data for it. And, you know, so this suggests that maybe you should look at psychosocial treatments. And Bill Horan at um, UCLA uh, did a review and basically concluded that psychosocial treatments have some promise in improving social cognition. Targeted treatments are like a, a probe. You come into a lab, um, they teach you some exercises to improve your emotion perception, and then they retest you. It's kind of a single session thing. An example would be someone comes in, and you'll see an example, and they have to look at a cross that's right over, crosshairs over the center of a person's face to focus their attention better. Um, Broad-based are these sort of multi-component interventions. So they might include cognitive remediation, like cognitive exercises, social cognition training, and social skills training. The problem is, is that that improves social cognition. <coughs> you're not sure why. You know, so you'd have to do what's called a dismantling strategy. Take apart the treatment to figure out what parts are most important. So we developed this manual. We called it SKIP. It took me a few years to come up with this acronym, but it held up the development of the project, but we were able to finally sort it out. <laughs> and basically, it's a group-based treatment. We do it over six months, weekly for an hour, uh, 20 to 24 sessions, and it's a group-based, as I mentioned. The first phase is focusing on improving emotions, improving emotion identification, and I'm going to show you an example in a second. We call it cold social cognition because we don't think the stimuli is personally relevant to people. So we're sort of having them look at these faces, they're not related to them in any way, and try to improve their ability. I'll give you some examples. We then have them try to, we then spend a phase, have, teach them how to not jump to conclusions, and also try to help them make more benign attributions about events. And then finally, we, we sort of focus on even hotter social cognition in the sense that we want them to bring personal events into, into, the, into the group, and then apply what they've learned. So this is really, and for those of you who are clinical psychologists or counseling psychologists or school psychologists, this kind of looks a bit like social skills training. So in phase one, I'm going to go through this kind of quickly. I don't know how much time I have. How am I doing? Okay. Um, uh, we introduce the concept of social cognition. We have people identify and define core emotions. So we show people faces and we have them decide, how do you know someone's happy or sad? And I'll show you an example in a second. We link face cues with core emotions. We do various types of emotion training, which I'm going to show you in a second, um, to give them practice during the session and be able to link facial cues to, to specific emotions. Uh, we'll also ask people to imitate facial expressions, because we find that the proprioceptive feedback actually seems, well, I don't know if it's the proprioceptive feedback, but imitating facial expressions in one study we did was associated with improved emotion perception. Um, and the other thing we do is we have them try to identify their own emotions. Um, so if people can't identify their own emotions, it may be difficult for them to identify the emotions of others. And this is because some people with schizophrenia have alexithymia. They're just unable to describe their own emotions. So over the 20 weeks of group, we have them actually sort of say, we ask them, how are you doing? And then after a couple of weeks, tell me good or bad, give me an emotion. And we sort of gradually shape their behavior. So this is an example of a face we might show them. So we might say, look at it, imitate the facial expression. You don't have to do it because you're not, presumably you don't have schizophrenia. And then you can make a guess. 
And then we ask, what is you, how, are, how is the person feeling? We ask for confidence judgments because we want confidence judgments to be a cue for them. So if they're not confident, that means they should get more information. They shouldn't jump to a conclusion. And survey says, sad. My, my graduate student developed this test, so if it seems silly, blame him. <laughs> this is from the University of Pennsylvania. This are, these are more faces. Um, so what we do in a group setting is we ask people, when you think you see if you can identify the emotion and tell us how confident you are. And then as a group, we sort of discuss you know, what things are changing. So it goes from least expressive to more expressive. You can see that. Anybody want to guess? Who said that? All right. You're right. And there you go. <laughs> right, if not, talk to me after the, the presentation. <laughs> and then the, the last thing is, is Dave, um, Dennis Combs, one of my former students, developed this task where you look at the face, you then have these crosshairs, and it's supposed to focus your attention. I think he's collecting eye tracking data to see if, if that actually is the mechanism. He's getting really good results. And, and so he finds that we, we, when you force people to look at the center of the face, this is associated with improved emotion perception in one of these targeted studies. So we've incorporated this into our group intervention. And that's what's the emotion. There's another one. The nice thing about these faces, as you could probably tell, oh, I guess the crosshairs didn't come up, is some of the old faces that are used are basically all Caucasian males. And uh, Dennis got these, I think these are Canadian, um, and they are multi-ethnic. So it makes it a lot better, uh, for, and I think much more realistic. One more. The second phase is trying to understand situations. Um, so we try to teach people, and I'll show you an example of how to make more benign attributions. I don't mean unrealistically benign, but not automatically start blaming people for things. Um, we play a variation on 20 questions for points, so they have to actually gather more points and not, a, not, and not, ask the, not answer the question, not guess it right away. Um, so we try to teach them how to ask more questions, kind of like the, the Columbo thing that was shown before, which I think is great. And then um, distinguishing facts from guesses. So what we did was we hired um, UNC actors um, to depict various situations in which people might get wrong. It's not the most professional, but it's, it's a start. Um, and we also show people photographs, and we ask the, the group members to identify, okay, what is, what is a, a fact about the situation, and what is an inference that you're making? Because where a lot of the, the, the patients get it wrong is the inferences. So we want them to distinguish between these facts versus guesses. So we might show them either a photograph or a video, and we might ask each group member to list three or four facts. Some people go right to a guess. They'll say these are people in a dormitory. That's like the most common one. And what we want to show them is that there's more agreement on facts and less agreement on interpretations. And if you're not sure of your interpretation, gather more information. So th this is one of the things that we'll do over a, over a number of sessions. And I should also say that, you know, if you've ever, anybody in here work with people with schizophrenia? Okay. I mean, one of the things is we don't want them some people with schizophrenia show a confirmatory bias. So they, they, they seek out information that confirms their paranoid delusion. So we don't want them to do that. We also want them to gather information that disconfirms their, their beliefs as well. So um, we want them to ask, get more information, but not necessarily information that supports their belief that people are after them, if that makes sense. Um, the last phase is, is an integration. We try to integrate what we've been going through in SKIT with um, what's going on in their everyday lives. And as you can imagine, a lot of these clients come in and you say, what's going on? They're like, nothing. So 
what we do in the group is, for each group member, they have a significant other that we stay in contact with, whether it's a mom or dad or husband or wife or child. So every week, we're actually trying to call the person um, and tell them what we're doing in group, send them like a summary of what they're doing and having them practice with, the, uh, with, their, uh, with their relative or friend, and also find out are there things that are difficult for this person weekly that we could sort of bring up in group with their permission. Um, so this would just be an example. Uh, this was of an inpatient a guy. Um, the Bill, Mary, and Eddie is this sort of simple heuristic we use to change attributions. And for those of you, again, who are clinical counselors or uh, school psychologists, this is like a thought record. Um, this person was very upset because their doctor didn't attend tre treatment team meetings. And he was going to yell at this doctor. He had a violent history, so we didn't want him to yell at the doctor. Um, we asked him to come up with different guesses based on different attributional styles. Um, blaming Bill tends to blame other people, so he would say that the doctor is negligent. We come up with this character called My Fault Mary. I know it sounds kind of silly, but people remember it. So he would, take, he would say that the doctor doesn't like him. And Easy Eddie would just say there's something due to fate, bad luck. There's a scheduling conflict. And what we do is we generate a corresponding emotion with each guess. And then the person comes up with a number of strategies. He decided to write a letter. And this was actually a good opportunity for us to try to, um, to also work on his theory of mind skills because he started writing a letter that was very hostile to the doctor. And we, we asked him, well, now put yourself in the doctor's place. How would you feel if you got such a letter? It's like if any of you have ever written a nasty email with somebody, I'm sure there's somebody out there that's done it, you know, the, you have to sort of step back and say, how would I feel if I got this email? You know, it'd probably be kind of upsetting. So he was actually able to write a more balanced letter than he would have normally. And most of the stuff we do is more role play like, you know, where they have a situation, we have them sort of generate different perceptions. We might have them try to imitate the person's facial expressions while they're talking to them to get a sense of um, uh, the other person's feelings. So um, the last phase is pilot testing. So again, this is. This is eye candy stuff, and I think that the, the problem in the field of schizophrenia, at least from my point of view, is that there are a number of effective treatments. The problem is, is they don't, nothing cures schizophrenia. It's not the sort of thing that someone's going to get a treatment, whether it's um, medication or psychosocial, and you're going to cure the disorder. So I think people in our field are very eager and interested in these new interventions, even if they're pilot studies. So this is one of my former students, Dennis Combs, who's uh, now in Texas. Um, and he looked at 28 inpatients with schizophrenia spectrum disorders, 18 received SCID, and, 18, and 10 got a coping skills group. Um, again, small n, uh, so these are just eye candy, and what we looked at is performance on an emotion perception test, and as you can see, there was an improvement from baseline to post-test on emotion perception, basically no change in coping skills. This is a theory of mind test. This is the one I showed you, actually, the hinting task. Again, significant improvement for the skit group. Um, basically, no change on the, uh, on the coping skills group. And this, we developed a measure looking at a hostile attributional bias. It has a number of scenarios that are ambiguous in regard to the intent of the character. So it would be like I'm walking here through campus, and I hear a bunch of um, university students start laughing. And the question is, we would ask the question, why are they laughing? So if I say they're laughing at me because they think I'm a dork, um, that would receive probably a rating of five in terms of a hostile attribution bias. If I said, oh, they're just probably having a good time, they're college students, I'd give them a rating of one. One thing to notice is if this is on a one to five scale, the absolute va level of hostile attributions is pretty low. So 
possibly one of the problems with the scale is there's a bit of a social desirability bias. You know, people don't want to look that hostile when they, they might be in real life. Um, and what you see is actually there is a decrease in, uh, for the skit group and a, non, and, a, and a non significant increase in the coping skills group. Lower is better for this. We want people to be less hostile, uh, not more hostile. And the last two are kind of interesting. This was a ward measure of social functioning. So these are inpatients. And what you can see is there's an uh, improvement from baseline to post-test in the skit group, no change in the coping skills group. My former student, Dennis Combs, gets great data. You know, I, I never get data this good. So I'm always like, Dennis, have you checked the data 5,000 times? Yes. So I think he's a very good methodologist. And Dennis was able to come up with something that was kind of clever. These are people on a forensic unit. And he decided to look at the number of incident reports prior to treatment and then after treatment. And what he found was that there were a uh, decrease in the number of incident reports uh, from before to after treatment and pretty much no change. And you can see there's some baseline differences. This, is, this isn't the cleanest study in terms of, the, uh, uh, in terms of uh, random, randomization. The last thing you want to do, anybody here interested in going to clinical psychology? Any of the students? You know, if you get involved in treatment research, you want to sort of do like consumer research. And you want to get sort of a sense for, you know, do people go to the group? Do the clinicians like it? Um, do the clients like it? So this is about half of the people that were in the skit group. And we just basically just ask them, um, overall, how helpful was the group? How much did it help you think socially? And how much did it help you relate to others socially? And you can see, this is just a number. Uh, I think there's nine people that responded. That most of them said that the group was either useful or very useful in terms of overall utility, thinking socially and relating socially. And people come to the group. You know, I think, what, they, what do they say? The people vote with their feet. And, you know, so if, people, if you can have a great group, if no one shows up for it, it's kind of worthless. Um, we actually ran a meditation study, believe it or not, for people with schizophrenia or negative symptoms, and we thought nobody would come. Negative symptoms are people that have, like, not much affect. You know, they're not really bringing anything to the table. And it was a study of loving-kindness meditation, but the attendance was outrageous. It was like 90%. I think part of the problem is people are used to going to the group therapy and talking about their disorder and their mental illness. And here, all I had to focus on was on these neat meditation exercises. So one of the things you look for is both client feedback and feasibility. You know, do people want it? Do they like it? The last pilot, and then I'll um, finish, is um, from my former student who actually co-developed the manual with me, Dave Roberts. He's one of those once-in-a-lifetime students, graduate students, brilliant guy, and even as socially skilled as he is, brilliant. So he's, a, he's really a, a gem. He, uh, for his dissertation, conducted a quasi-experimental trial with 25 outpatients. TAU is treatment as usual. So people either got treatment as usual or they got treatment as usual and the skit group. Because it's a quasi-experimental design, the first thing you'll notice is, is there's baseline differences. <laughs> so pre-test, post-test. And you can see this is looking at face emotion identification. Higher is better. And even though there's a significant within-group effect for the skit group, which is in red, it's really hard to interpret given the baseline differences. And again, for those of you who are doing this research, this is why we do randomized controlled design, so we don't have baseline differences. This is a neat test, and actually these baseline differences weren't statistically significant, called the awareness of social inference test. It's a theory of mind test, and it actually is, shows a number of people talking about there's social situations, and in one of the modules, you have to guess whether, um, uh, guess whether they're being sarcastic or not. So this is kind of more of a verbal, um, auditory, visual theory of mind test. And what we saw is that, that we saw a significant interaction and improvement in the skit group versus the treatment as usual group. 
And then finally, this is a role play test. So people go through a number of role plays. At the conclusion of the role play, raters who are blind to treatment rate their social skills. And what we find is, um, even when you control for baseline differences, there's a significant improvement in the skit group relative to the treatment as usual group. And again, the holy grail for schizophrenia research, I guess from my point of view, is this improvement in social functioning. And for those of you who know the field, you might just say, well, why not do social skills training, which actually works really well. And one of the problems is, is while social skills training, I think, is one of the best treatments you can offer someone with schizophrenia, it doesn't always generalize um, outside of the, of the skills that you teach them in the session. So that's why people think, well, you know, you should start targeting processes that underlie social skill, maybe to help them see the similarities or differences when, uh, across situations that might be novel to them. Um, so there have been some other studies that have been done in this area. Um, a colleague of mine at UNC, Lauren Turner-Brown, um, conduct modified skit for people with high-functioning autism. This was pretty neat. Um, so she basically rewrote the manual, focused less on attributions, focused more on the emotion perception and theory of mind, and in particular emotions like uh, the fact that some people with autism, and this is in my area of specialization, um, they'll talk to you and then you want to sort of you know, you lose interest after a while, you have to leave, but they'll keep talking to you. So she actually hired high school, um, high school uh, actors, because um, the original study was with adults, second studies were done with um, uh, adolescents and young adults, to depict situations where people are missing the mark. So, you know, uh, if I'm talking to Jerry, and Jerry's like, okay, you know, I gotta get going, gotta get home, see my wife, and I keep following him out the door and talking to him, this would be an example of missing the mark. They're not picking up those cues. So we spent some time trying to teach them what are the cues. And the wild thing is, we actually ran one group, and they were able to identify it. And the conclusion of the group, both um, Lauren and Gabriel Ditker, um, had to go home because they had young children at home. They had new babies. And they, even though they could pick it up during the group, once they had to leave, the, the clients were still talking to them. Like they couldn't figure, like five minutes later, it just didn't register. Um, but it was a neat group to be in. And I really, really enjoyed just, I hadn't been around people with high-functioning autism. Dave did an open trial of SKIT in the community with an organization called Federation, um, it's called FEGS in New York. And this is with real mental health um, clinicians, real clients, it wasn't like some nice clinic associated with UNC. And then I just found out that Raymond Chan in, um, in uh, China has done a pilot randomized controlled trial with individuals with schizotypal features. So they translated SKIT into Chinese and they found some positive effects for SKIT uh, in terms of improving social functioning. The other thing I want to mention is there's actually another study that came out in Turkey, and the reason why I want to mention is they found the more involved family members were in the treatment, the better the treatment effects. So it, I think it speaks to this issue, which a lot of us who work with uh, clients know, it, it's hard to generalize these things out of the session. But if you have somebody who can help you do that, the better. Um, so I was delighted to see that there's some good findings coming out you know, elsewhere. Um, so currently, um, we are just finished a randomized trial. This is a NIMH R34, and this basically NIH will support you to do a treatment development study. Um, it's really a nice mechanism for those of you who are interested in treatment research. It's typically a three-year grant, so it's not a big, you know, multi-million dollar, but it will help you sort of get an idea of whether to get your manual written and to implement your treatment and get some preliminary feedback on it. We looked at, actually, it's 66 outpatients with schizophrenia spectrum disorders. And I'll just show you the consort diagram in a second. And then Lauren um, adapted SKIT for adolescents with high-functioning autism. And this was funded by Autism Speaks. And this was a neat 
thing, I, honestly, her results aren't great. And this is the sad thing. The neat thing is, is that she got, she would have, a, while she was meeting with the young people with uh, high-functioning autism, they would have a concurrent family session going on. And, you know, so they would try to make sure that they were covering the same information. I think a lot of the families wanted more support than education because the families who were coming in were highly educated about autism. So, and even about social cognition. So there wasn't a lot we could add to it, but I thought it was exciting because this is what we envisioned it in terms of really getting families involved and trying to build in generalization. So I don't know if you can see the slide. This is the consort diagram. For, again, for those of you who do randomized trials, they make you do these to show what is the flow of patients or subjects through the study. And this is, I got this last week, so my excuse if it doesn't add up is it's my graduate student's fault, but I think I looked at it. So we had 234 people referred to the study. We phone screened 137. 97 passed the screen. Then they, the rest were baseline screened and uh, we had a number of people that failed the baseline screen for various reasons. And then you could see 66 people got randomized to treatment. They either got skit or treatment as usual. And there were actually very few dropouts, about three in each group. The problem with doing this sort of research is if you offer treatment and you only touch base with people every six months, um, and these clients don't always have the most stable housing, you're going to lose touch with them. So we actually, now we skit people we see because they come in a group. We asked the treatment as usual people to call us every week just to tell us, are you, still, are you still at your address? You know, is everything stable? So we can maintain contact with them. We are literally just analyzing these results um, now. And right now what they're looking like is a skit group is doing better in terms of a measure of social functioning, um, lower negative symptoms, which is really tough thing to change. Um, and there's some uh, evidence that their attributions are becoming more benign, less hostile. Um, there's actually some weird findings with the treatment's usual group doing better in terms of self-esteem. So we have to figure out, is that a real finding, or is, this, um, uh, or is there some sort of outliers that are involved? And again, for those of you interested in this treatment research, our next step will be, imagine 33 people get assigned a skit. A lot of these people don't come to every session. Some of these people don't go to any sessions. So um, when you do these analyses, they're called intent to treat. So you look at whoever was assigned to treatment, whether they attend or not. Our next step will be to look at people that maybe attend 50% or more. Um, that's sort of the criterion. And see whether these treatment completers are um, improved more than the treatment as usual group. Now, these should be our stars. And the other thing we'll eventually look at is uh, we've been recording how often the therapist had contact with a significant other. And they rated the significant other in terms of the quality of the contact. Like were they really interested in helping their, their, their relative improve? So we're going to look at sort of these star relatives or friends to see whether people that had more support outside a group, whether they improved more relative to people that identify a significant other, but they really didn't want to be involved. And you can imagine, these are people with chronic schizophrenia, by the way, so a lot of their significant, some of their significant others, not all, are other people with schizophrenia. So it makes it a little bit more complicated. And some of them are other therapists. So it was kind of a mix in terms, it wasn't, it's easy when you work with young people where you can say it's mom and dad. Um, that's really the best. So to summarize, um, we feel like SCIT has promise in improving social cognition and social functioning. But like I said, this is just eye candy research. You know, we, 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 we can't be very confident in the results until large-scale cl uh, randomized controlled clinical trials are, are implemented. Um, because I think that the state of the field People have been implementing it in a variety of countries, like, and we've done trainings in a number of them. 
um, in UK, Australia, Turkey, Spain, Finland, Japan, Hong Kong, and Israel, and hoping that some of the results that come out of their laboratories uh, will be positive. As you can imagine, this involves translation and back translation and, you know, a lot of work. But I think it's, it's nice that they're eager for this. And again, I think we're on that, you know, I showed you that increase in number of uh, articles on social cognition. It's like we're sort of at that peak of the wave right now. People are interested. In 10 years, they're going to be interested in something else. My guess, motivation, which I think is really, really important in this area. But it doesn't get as much press. And I think the greatest challenge is generalization to real world behavior. Um, I always say it's, if we can't improve social functioning ultimately, then I don't feel our treatment is very useful. So we want to improve social cognition as a means to improve um, social behavior. Um, I should also note in terms, Dave, Dave Roberts is my former student, uh, Dennis Combs, a former student of mine at LSU, another outstanding student, um, supported by NIH. And we also got support from the Foundation of Hope in North Carolina um, that provides seed money for pilot projects. Um, and it's typically administered through the Department of Psychiatry, and they were actually able to support Dave Roberts' dissertation on this. So we're really fortunate because if it wasn't for that funding, we wouldn't have been able to get the um, R34 funding at all. Um, thanks. And I'm really happy to be able to uh, introduce her today, uh, Dr. Patricia May Berbers. Uh, she's a staff research scientist at the Human Centered uh, Systems Group at Honeywell Advanced Technology in Columbia, Maryland. She got her BA in psychology from Villanova in 1991. Uh, she then got her master's degree in human factors psychology from Catholic University. From there, she went on to uh, get her PhD in engineering psychology from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, which is one of the top programs in the country. Um, in 1999, she received the Stanley N. Roscoe Award for the best doctoral dissertation in the area of aerospace human factors. She joined Honeywell in 1998 and has led programs in areas such as high-speed research, flight critical systems research, advanced primary flight displays, enhanced uh, vision systems, and, and many others. She's also served as the project manager for several programs, including two multi-million DARPA programs, um, million dollar DARPA programs. Um, she currently sees, uh, serves as the technical lead for the Honeywell Enhanced Vision Systems Program, designing and evaluating next-generation avionics displays for Honeywell's uh, advanced cockpit. Uh, she's the author of, uh, of a number of journal papers and book chapters and dozens of conference papers and technical reports. She holds five patents on alerting and notification, display design, and workload monitoring, and she has filed 12 other patents. Uh, in the areas of display design and human uh, machine interface. She was also a four-time recipient of Honeywell's uh, Aerospace Technical Award. And today, she's going to speak to us about using psychology for avionics design. Thank you, Dr. Folk. Let's see. Let's put on a presentation I know something about. <laughs> okay. As they say, let's move on to something almost completely different from what we've heard about. Um, 
It was my pleasure to, to be invited back here, and uh, I loved Villanova. I enjoyed my four years here. And um, I did not go into academics, much to the, uh, the, my professors, most of my professors said, you gotta go into academics. I said, I, I really like this applied side of things. And I even like that as a student. Um, to take you through my progress of, of starting in the academics. You know, I was here at Villanova 20 years ago, um, and I did a lot of this undergrad research. So I did spend a lot of time in, in the dark basements, black walls, land out seas going across. The, to, yes, I do. <laughs> Maybe nightmares. <laughs> but uh, the, yeah, <laughs> the dynamic visual cuties. As a matter of fact, my very first paper was with Dr. Long. Uh, I then went on, I, I liked visual perception and, and performance, and I, I, I took this great class from, from Dr. Falk, and if you hadn't had the opportunity to do so, I strongly suggest you take a, a human factors course. It's, it's uh, a great field. I went on to uh, Catholic University to study with a, a professor I had uh, a lot of faith in, and I had studied a lot of his research prior to entering there. And it, look more at this automation reliability and how does this change someone's trust in the automation and the monitoring of that automation. So that's the, the work that I did and I, I read a lot about another professor that I was very interested in, in learning from. So the, from there I went to University of Illinois and that was a unique program because it crossed not only psychology but also engineering and aviation and so you could take classes in each of these areas and learn from each of these perspectives, and that's why they called it this engineering psychology program. And um, it was there that I learned I flew an airplane. Uh, I didn't. I don't have a private pri private pilot's license, but I got to take off in a in a Cessna 172, and it was it was fun. Uh, and I looked at a lot of the symbology and what the pilots need to fly an airplane. Um, and where do you put that information? How do you allocate your attention to particular areas of the display? And how can you help the pilot learn and, and understand and process this information in the best way? So we looked at this and we looked at it on head-up displays, which is a display that a pilot sees by flipping a combiner glass down. It's projected at optical infinity and you see this symbology at the same time you see information in the outside world. And we looked at visual attention and, the, and um, attention in, in three-dimensional space. And then I, um, while I was there, before I finished my PhD, I, I took this internship in this godforsaken place of Minneapolis where it was really cold, but we got to do good research. So I never thought I would have gone there had I not taken this internship. So I encourage you all to take internships because it really does help you focus on your area of research and it ensures that you're doing what you would like to do and, and after I graduated they, um, I took a full-time position there and I've been there ever since. Now this is not an advertisement for Honeywell <laughs> but what I wanted to do is really tell you a little bit about Honeywell because most people think this Honeywell's famous round dials you know I know Honeywell that's my thermostat at home. Almost equal amount of work goes into the aerospace. So if you don't, if you're not a pilot, you don't know these things, but the, the aerospace part of Honeywell is as big as that, the controls part of Honeywell. We build <coughs> engines for aircraft, we build landing and lighting and the APU that, that saves solely coming down, that, that was Honeywell. We, we helped 
continued to give him that power that allowed him to land the aircraft, even though it was on the Hudson River. The other thing that I mostly focus on is the avionics. How do you present the information <coughs> to the pilots on board the aircraft? And aerospace goes everything from pilots of small aircraft, general aviation aircraft, business aircraft, large air, large air transport, um, helicopters, and, um, and the Orion program before that was canceled. <coughs> That was canceled. So what I'd like to do is tell you a little bit about my favorite field of, of human factors, a little bit of that, about the history and how I got there, and then two specific examples of research that's done in an applied environment. OK, so human factors. And correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it's, it's really looking at the interaction between the user of the system and the system itself. And how do you develop the best interaction between those two? Some people um, refer to it as the human-computer interaction. Humans are good at certain things. Machines are good at certain things. Uh, humans are very good at you know, the advanced level processing, the complex problem solving. You might not have all of the answers, but the, the personal figure it out. That's how Sully figured out how to land that aircraft. The machines are really good at remembering things, monitoring things, things that we find boring and for vigilance purposes we can't continue to monitor. So how do you allocate functions to each of these individuals so that as a whole the, the system performs well? The field itself was born out of World War II. What was happening there is obviously we're at a war. But look at how many aircraft we actually lost in the United States, not due to you know, fire, but because they were actually crashing. And they were crashing for no good reason. What was happening to our pilots? Young, young kids didn't really know, didn't have the basic, oh, how far did I go? Didn't have the basic training here, and they weren't trained to respond to emergencies. That wasn't even part of it. The, the, it was stick and rudder. You, you know how to fly it. Get out there and fly the airplane. There were no standards. FAA didn't exist. So you, you could, you, there were no standards and no procedures and nothing that they had to do in particular to fly this aircraft. There, was, there were no rules. And then they didn't really have a lot of the high-functioning instrumentation. So, for instance, a pilot might be flying along and basically without a lot of the instrumentation, they fly by looking out the window. And if you look out the window and you don't recognize where you are, you don't know where you're going. And if you look out the window and you start to get bad weather conditions, what they call IMC, instrument meteorological conditions, you can't see out the window at all and therefore you have to rely on your instrumentation. If the instrumentation fails or if that instrumentation doesn't give you the, the information that you need, you can't, you don't know where you're going, you crash that airplane, you run into mountains, you do things like that. So going back to the history of things, you think, you know, as a student, how much am I learning now that I'm going to be able to take with me later on? So my first paper, and no, this is not an electronic version. 
because I am old enough, there was no word processors. <laughs> and we had to type it up. And I saved it. So if you as professors ever wonder if you have influence on your students, you do. Because we save these things. And look, this is what I was interested in 20 years ago. And I'm lucky enough to be able to be doing it today. It's almost exactly 20 years ago. So what do I do as a staff scientist within Honeywell with human factors? When I first started, it was a real small group. And Honeywell you know, builds all these great things. But what do we really need human factors for? Aviation has advanced. We do a good job. Our displays are good. We got them on Gulf streams. We don't really need human factors. Well, as things progressed and as we began to influence the design of our products, they actually got better. And so people within Honeywell started to notice that. And now today, many of the human factors folks that sit in my group don't participate on these programs. They lead these programs. So you have a human factors degree, you can go in and build very advanced products. You work on a multidisciplinary team. I have, you know, computer scientists, or we have our flight ops department. We have graphical user, user designs. Um, we all work as part of a very multidisciplinary team, and together we create these products. But we do a lot of things within this cycle of human factors. The first thing we do is we go out with our, what we call, uh, product management group and marketing group. We heard a little bit about the marketing yesterday. And we find out what our customers want. And our customers are everyone from Boeing or, or uh, Dassault, Bombardier, the people that build the jets, to the operational centers like the, the, the um, Continentals and, and, um, and Southwest Airlines, if I can mention them today, um, the people that fly the planes. And we find out what it is that they need, what it is that, that they want, what things, how they're not supported today. We then break things down. We do things like task analysis and functional allocation where we decide what systems need to, what, what tasks the, the user needs to do, what tasks the automation needs to do, and how do we integrate those two. And then we look at technical feasibility as far as what can we do now and what kind of um, um, development do we still need to do? What kind of research do we need to do? I spend a lot of my time in this area. I, everything from beginning user interface design, focus groups, we spoke a little bit about focus groups yesterday, getting the right people in the room to talk about the things that they need to do, um, the problems that they have and how we solve those things. Rapid prototyping. This might be just on your, your computer, that you decide how something is going to look. It doesn't have to be a full up evaluation and a, and, and a flying aircraft. I can be something as you know, paper and pencil sometimes to draw up designs to see, is this what you want to see? Is this how you use it? And you go through that type of process. And then as you progress through here, you're progressing in maturity and in um, the TRL of the te technical readiness um, assessment. Then we move to the different types of evaluations. And as you move through here, they become more formal. Heuristic evaluations just sort of come on, come on in. What, what can you use? How do you use it? Um, how well can you use it? Uh, what things should be changed to really perfect the type of system that we're developing? We go through usability where we actually get the interaction with the system itself. 
and see how well that they're actually performing. And then we do simulations. The simulations might be in our you know, part task, low fidelity simulator, or it can be everything from taking that same software and, and plugging it in through um, a number of mechanisms into our aircraft that fly and going and flying um, the information. At some point, we do need to, the, this organization, the Federal Aviation Administration, needs to be involved. They care about what's on our aircraft. They care about the safety of, of uh, the flying public. And they want to ensure that things that we develop are going to be safer than what's currently out there. We continue that through this cycle with you know, more flight tests to continue to know that this, this uh, system that we've developed is truly safe and is going to be um, something that can be integrated onto the aircraft. And then we continue to follow our system to see if the products that we have out there can be improved in some way. And one of the projects that I'm going to talk about a little bit later today is uh, a smart view project or a smart view product that we're enhancing. We're enhancing with an uh, additional capability. All right, so as a human factors person, a lot of time they ask us, well, if you use my system, what is the workload level? And workload is, you know, nebulously defined of, of you know, just the amount of demand needed, the cognitive resources in order to complete your task. And there's a lot of ways that you can actually get at workload. The first one is the primary task. You give them the task, you see how well they do. They do really well. Low workload, but you're not really getting at any of the spare capacity of that. They might have tried really hard, and that's why they got it right, or it wasn't that hard for them, and that's why. You don't really understand the underlying mechanisms associated with accomplishing that task. So you might try secondary tasks. So you give them their primary task, and if they have any spare resources, you want them to co complete their secondary tasks. And that really looks at the amount of resources, and you try to tap that so that you get to the edge of their workload levels to be able to figure out how much they can, they can handle in the, the workload. Subjective ratings is another way we can look at um, a person's workload. And it's basically asking them, how hard is it? How hard are you working? Mentally, how hard are you working? Physically, how hard are you working? Your effort, frustration, anyone who's done workload recognizes these as the indices of the NASA TLX or task load index. The last thing that I want to focus on is the physiological measures. And in particular, EEG, which we heard a little bit about at the, at the opening of this session. Um, looking at the neurophysiological mechanisms and how that actually changes with workload. Because we can look at these things unobtrusively. Unlike the rats, our subjects don't like things pointing into their brains. But we can look at EEG, and um, that is the most direct measure, looking at the, the um, electrical brain activity while you're accomplishing your task. And as you even saw with the rats, you need to see your, your participants working in order to understand how the behaviors manifest themselves. So I'm going to take this neuroscience that you had the, the uh, pleasure of hearing about earlier today and take that and move it into the field of human factors. I'm going to call it neurotechnology to study it, and I'm going to call it neuroergonomics because my previous professor coined this term and now we have to use it. <laughs> It's neuroergonomics, so taking that neuroscience and applying it to human factors 
or uh, ergonomics of understanding how the person at work um, can actually uh, conduct uh, uh, or understand their workload while they're conducting their task. Now this is a 256 electrode uh, set on a baby and this is typically how you see EEG work done. It's in the laboratory, it's in a controlled environment. You can do it on a baby so the babies don't tend to stay still. So you know that you're, you're going to get a lot of noise in this data. One of the DARPA projects that uh, we worked was called Augmented Cognition. And it was, you know, very DARPA for, for the students that know, don't know the type of research DARPA funds. It's, it's far out stuff. It's, you know, the things that nobody else wants to touch. It's the risky things. So they throw a lot of money at you and they, they try to have you solve it. So this particular project, Augmented Cognition, pinned each of the, the very large companies. It was Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Daimler, Chrysler, and Honeywell with the individual military organizations to decide I want you to measure neurophysiologically what's going on with these individuals. I want you to take that information, feed it back into the system to create a closed loop system that's driven by your neurophysiology. And Boeing, you're going to do it for the Air Force. Daimler Chrysler, you're going to do it for the Marines. Um, Lockheed did it for the Navy and we got stuck with the dismounted soldier. And I say that because nobody wanted Honeywell's job. Because everybody else, you could do your job sitting down. And anyone who knows EEG research, the worst thing you can do is swamp it with artifacts. Talk about heel strikes, walking like this, clenching your teeth, uh, chewing gum. All this swamps the signal. And you cannot do anything about it. That's why the researchers go back to the laboratory after they collect this data and spend weeks on end cleaning it up before they can start to say anything about it. So the DARPA hard thing was, I want you to take this research and I want you to collect this data and I want you to do it in real time to feed it back to the system and have the system do something about it. And anyone who was in this field said, never going to happen. This is our Dismounted soldier, he is a real soldier, had just come back from, um, from uh, actually two, two uh, stints out in Iraq. And the first thing you might notice is there's much fewer electrodes. The other thing that you can't see is it's not connected to anything. It's a wireless system. And the third thing is that you'll never be able to see here is that it's being fed back in real time to the systems that are then changing the communications over their radio. So it's a, a, a radio communications scheduler of being able to understand workload, understand context, and do something about that information to improve the throughput um, for this particular soldier. The biggest thing that actually came out of this that most people recognize is that no matter what the application is, we were able to clean up this data to a point that you can use it in real time through a lot of the signal processing and um, mechanisms that we used to clean up the artifacts to then separate it. We initially started with neural nets and we really found that over time these neural nets didn't, weren't stable enough to predict performance later down the road. So we, we ended up doing more machine learning, uh, linear discrimination, uh, between different um, uh, states of interest. 
Uh, we, we had our, uh, at our disposal a lot of different neurophysiological measurements. We really did focus on EEG because that was um, the main direct measure that we could use for cognitive activity. There were others, and it's more cutting-edge technology to look at FNIR, um, which is just you, you place the sensor on the head and the amount of blood that is drawn to, to the brain, um, with the blood oxygenation in that blood, um, tells you about what area of the brain you're using. It's slightly less direct than the EEG, and even more, or even less direct, is the ECG in the heart rate and heart rate variability. And what happens there is, as the brain demands more blood, the heart speeds up, and the variability of the heart decreases when you're under higher cognitive demand. But this is the the resolution of that is much slower. You're talking about minutes here for ECG to look at differences. Where FNIR, you can look at it in seconds, and EEG, you look at it in milliseconds. So you really get much better direct correlation. And let me show you one of the projects that we looked at uh, looking at EEG. This is a project that, uh, again, DARPA and uh, Sikorsky, and Sikorsky is the uh, developer of the Black Hawk helicopter, the UH-60. And they were losing a lot of helicopters in the um, in the, over, over in Iraq, particularly in Afghanistan, because of the brownout problem. Pilot flies by looking out the window, assessing their environment. Nice paved roads here and, and, and airports don't have this problem, but in Iraq where you have infiltration and exfiltration in unimproved areas, you kick up all of this sand. The pilot can't see the ground. Pilot can't assess whether there's a slope there or a rock or anything else and they are losing the aircraft because of this. So what we had to do is take this and look at solutions for it. So the first thing I did is I took a lot of the human factors in the design of the system itself and we, we ported one of our systems that we use for commercial aviation over. But then we also had to incorporate a lot of the sensor information that would be able to see through these particulates and be able to give you information about uh, the, the outside world around you. Um, I'll skip this, but this is our closed loop system. These are more behavioral techniques that you do to figure out what the, uh, the, the pilot in this case is doing by looking at their, their behaviors and their actions. And then this is how you feed in your neurophysiological data. This is uh, the Sikorsky Sim up in um, Connecticut. And uh, we looked at multiple solutions, and I'm, you know, IRB, I'm, I'm hiding the identity of my pilot, looking at the EEG equipment. We, it was less important to look at the, the um, uh, wireless system in this case. We wanted to have a few more electrodes, and we were seated now, so we were able to use this type of system. And we were looking at workload in this case. Um, I don't know, I'm sure you cover uh, rock curves, but basically, without getting into detail here, Anything where you have a line that right goes right through the middle with a binary measure here is something that is performing at chance. Here, anything that will hug along the axes is something that has greater accuracy in the classification of behavior. In this case, we're looking at low workload versus high workload. So this, based on EEG alone between two different sessions, um, and they weren't that different but it was a, a, a scenario where the pilot was flying into an area 
and there were more obstacles they needed to avoid versus an area where it was more well known and uh, but they were still flying in they were still flying in for brownout and flying and landing the aircraft but we could assess the difference in workload with pretty high accuracy 88 percent accuracy here based on EEG alone and we don't typically use the information from EEG alone we, we use context and everything um, along with it to really understand the, the whole system. I'm just, um, it mirrored that of subjective workload, real big error bars here, but it, it, the, the uh, performance mirrored it. Um, just because of the lack of time here, I'm going to jump ahead to the second project to um, give you a little bit more information about um, how you potentially can look at human factors in the design of a system. Here's the FAA again. Uh, what are they concerned about? They're concerned about safety and reliability, but they're really concerned about efficiency as well. It's a, a big growth. There's a lot more aircraft out there, and it's only going to continue to grow. So how do we continue to have equally safe flight? Because air traffic flight is the safest way to fly, but we want to get more aircraft in. And the biggest thing that really clogs the system is weather. So what kinds of systems can you have on board that will help you fly in poor visibility conditions? So I'm going to talk a little bit about this display right here. It's called a primary flight display, or PFD. And it mirrors the information that's out the window of the aircraft. It's called a synthetic vision technology, and it uses database information, so database on board stored information to project a three-dimensional view of the outside world. Anyone who plays video games might not be that impressed with this type of technology. But I tell you, this is a state-of-the-art display. And it gives you all the information that you need to fly. How fast you're going, how high you are, the attitude of the aircraft, the role of the aircraft, the pitch of the aircraft. Here's a compass, and you're going to hit this localizer, and you're going to follow the localizer in. You're going to hit your waypoint. You're going to land your aircraft. Got everything you need. What else do you want? This is a synthetic vision display. I guarantee you, if I give this to my 10-year-old, he can fly it. Because this, intuitively, is going to give you much more information, much more situation awareness of what's going on. And if you were a pilot who couldn't look out the window and saw this versus this, which would give you more comfort? Which would give you more understanding of, yeah, I know where my runway is. This is it's, it's going to take me right down into where the runway is. But I know where my mountains are. If I have to fly a missed approach, which means I'm not going to land but, but take off, I'm going to know exactly where the danger is. So this is one of the, the displays that we have that was just recently certified and is flying on the Gulfstream aircraft. So this is the type of system that we do. I've got five minutes to tell you about the results of an of a EVS display, Enhanced Vision System. We like acronyms, too. <laughs> Um, where we take the information and the studies, we, this is a laboratory environment, big screen in front of you, displays, <coughs> real hardware, and we take it into different places. This is on our research aircraft. It's a sovereign aircraft. We had to put this camera on board. Now I'm going to take real-time information, information from a sensor, and integrate it onto this synthetic vision display that I told you was based on an onboard database. So it's not going to have any information about anything that's changing in real time. As a matter of fact, the resolution itself is not that good. It can tell you where the mountains are, but not where the peaks are. It's not exactly um, the, the perfect, because you can't. You can't 
you can't afford to have that kind of space on board the aircraft. So here I'm taking information, now I'm integrating it with a sensor and I'm going to put it onto the same display so that everything that's in here is a sensor information and everything that's outside is based on that database. Now I just have to make sure the two cor uh, are correlated. Um, I'm not going to go all the way through this, but I'm going to take you flying a little bit. This is going into Rutland, Vermont. It's not real low visibility. The clouds are high, but uh, the, the pilot's um, decision height is very high because of the mountains around it. That decision height is the point at which the pilot has to decide, yes, I see the runway and I can land, or I'm going to fly a missed approach. Um, if I start this, I'll just see if it works. Okay. So when the sensor is in the clouds, it doesn't see much, but this pixelated kind of poltergeist image um, of the, the area around, because the, an IR camera is going to see the heat of its source. This is out the window. That's what the pilot's seeing when he's looking out the window. What it picks up that the pilots need to know is the approach lights. It's these blinking lights right before the runway that confirms to the pilot, I am where I think I am, and I am assured that I'm in the position where I think I am. That's what the FAA cares about. Here's your runway, and here you start to see nothing on here but this, these, these lights that are coming in here. And that's what it's assuring. My FMS, my flight management system is telling me your runway's here, but can I be sure of that? Well, the sensor on board the aircraft is telling me the lights are just beyond that runway. Yes, that's where I expect to see them, and that's where they're coming up, and I'm still not seeing it out the window. So this is what's going to give the, the pilots and the, and the airlines a little bit more what they call operational credit. If I have this on board, it's a safety system, but it's also a navigation system. And if I have this on board, I'm going to let my pilots fly a little bit lower to the ground because I know they have more information than they would have otherwise with that blue over brown display, round dial attitude display. So that's what you're getting here. And really all of this, if you continue to have um, low visibility conditions, this is giving you all the priming that you need of I know where I'm landing, I know where I am, I know where my runway is, this is my flight path marker, I put it at the end of the runway, I continue doing this, I'm going to land safely. And that's what you can do. And this is still very high, this is still at 1400 feet. Pilots are doing this at 100 feet above the ground. And I can't fast forward through this and if anybody's interested I can show you. I'm going to be running out of time here but I can show you what it looks like if you're if you're flying at, at 100 feet above the ground. It's pretty darn close. Here's 250 feet above the ground, and that's what the signal would actually look like. You're almost right on top of that runway. So this is what you get with this smart view information with sensor data. You're allowing the pilot to confirm this uh, position. It's best of both worlds. You have the situation awareness of, this, of the mountains around you, but you have the information, the, the focus, the visual attention, focused on the area that's most important right in the center of the display. It's not on a HUD that you have to look through anymore, so you have this unobstructed view of the world when you transition to the outside environment. Smooth transition because of the priming, you know where you're looking and so you're enhancing the situation awareness. We do this in all kinds of environments and all type of, of aircraft. Take all the measures that you all are learning to do. Someone said it yesterday, statistics, statistics, Learn as much as you can, because as you don't, 
as you don't work with it as much, you tend to forget. So learn, learn as much as you can. And then finally, uh, for my last slide, it's just to tell you, these are the methodologies. This is just a small sampling of some of the metho methodologies that you can use in uh, human factors. I thoroughly enjoy my job. I get to do things different that are you know, different every day in all different types of very challenging environments. And I, I owe it to Dr. Falk. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs>